Every human on the planet is born with what St. Augustine once called a God-shaped vacuum in every man. We're born with this longing deep within us that knows that we are not quite complete on, on our own, that something is missing. And if we're all honest, a lot of our individual lives are consumed with filling that deep void in our heart. We look to fill that hole with anything that seems to make sense around us. We have this deep longing to be made whole, to fill the void within our soul. For all of human history, humanity has sought to fill that vacuum in any way that we can think of. St. Augustine wrote that after a lifetime of seeking to fill that void in all the wrong places. He wasn't just theorizing or philosophizing. That's a real word. Um, he was writing out of lived experience. Paul, the author of Philippians, where we're reading from today, he had a testimony of trying to fill that void with religion and zeal which on some fundamental level, that's what religion, any world religion is. It's an attempt to fill the void. For others, you may look to affirmation or acceptance from partners or parents to fill the void. Many look for fulfillment and meaning and what we can contribute to the world. What do we have to offer? What's our purpose? We're all looking to satisfy that deep longing be it with achievement, wealth, power, possessions, relationships, sex, or belonging to the right tribe. And some end up simply giving up on this quest to fill the void and turn to self-medicating, numbing the pain, trying to cover over the void with drug and drink. Over a thousand years after St. Augustine, the 17th century philosopher Blaise Pascal wrote, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries to fill with everything around him but this infinite abyss can only be filled with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, with God himself. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel that deep ache within your soul, that all is not right in the world around you and within your very being, that there's something missing. Maybe you've explored and exhausted different avenues to fill that void. And this morning I wanna tell you, friend, there is one thing alone that satisfies, and his name is Jesus. Paul, in our text today, is writing from a place of having found the one thing that satisfies, as he calls it, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And we see in Paul's life and in his writing here in Philippians, this kind of three-phase journey of coming to know Christ completely. Phase one of meeting Jesus, where we encounter Jesus, and it's this 
transition point in our life that sets us on a whole new trajectory, a trajectory that is phase two of following Jesus, where every day of our life is committed to knowing Christ more fully until eventually phase three, we all will come to know Christ ultimately when we are united with him in the resurrection if you are in Christ Jesus. And now that journey is one that has to be walked out over a lifetime for yourself if you want to know Christ. But this morning we're going to kind of survey this journey in our minds taking a look at each phase of the journey of knowing Christ through the story and lens of Paul and seeing ourselves within his story. So phase one, meeting Jesus. If you have a Bible uh, and you wanna open with me to Acts chapter nine, we're gonna read the story of where Paul actually meets Jesus. And if you're unfamiliar, if this is new to you, here's a little background for you as we begin reading Acts chapter nine. Paul is actually a rebrand. His name used to be Saul before he was Paul. So there's that. So if you see that, just interchange those names. You might hear them interchanged. Um, And second, Saul, AKA Paul, uh, was an opponent of the church. And he was an opponent of the way of Jesus, actively persecuting the church. And this is what we read in Acts chapter nine, starting in verse one. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, that's the way of Jesus, men or women, he might bring them to be bound in Jerusalem. And as he was on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. And Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And then the story continues on as Paul is in Damascus, he waits there. And there's another disciple of Jesus in the city named Ananias, who has this vision of the Lord, who tells him, go, I want you to go find Paul, this guy who's been persecuting the church. And I want you to lay hands on him that he may regain his sight because he is a chosen possession of mine. And he's going to carry my name before all the Gentiles and the kings and children of Israel. And so Ananias obeys the Lord, he goes and he lays hands on Paul and Paul is healed, his vision is restored and he receives the Holy Spirit and Paul in response is baptized and commits his life to knowing Christ more fully, to following Jesus. So Paul, or at the time Saul, he meets Jesus. And let me tell you that his experience was a little unique compared to most people's experience of first meeting Jesus. Most people don't get like a blinding light situation. Um, But Paul meets the risen Jesus. 
and he experiences this healing power by the power of the Holy Spirit through Ananias. And Paul's eyes are opened both physically so that he could see again, but also spiritually. He's awakened to this reality that Jesus is the Messiah that Israel had been waiting for, that Jesus is the king that Saul himself had been waiting for. First century Israel was waiting for this long-awaited king that had long been prophesied through all of the Old Testament scriptures. But Israel had their sights set just a little bit too small. They were expecting a king who would free them from the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire and set them free as a nation state establishing an earthly kingdom of Israel. But God had much bigger plans in store. God didn't want to simply set Israel free from the Roman Empire. He wanted to free all of humanity He wanted to free all of humanity from sin and death, the barrier that keeps us from God. God wanted this to happen because God wants people to know him and be in relationship with him. So after encountering Jesus, Paul is spiritually awakened to this reality that Jesus, who he had been persecuting by persecuting the church, was the long-awaited king not just of Israel, but of all of humanity, the one who would liberate humanity from sin and death and open a direct line to the creator God of the universe. And that is why Jesus, why following Jesus and coming to know him was of surpassing worth to Paul. Because to know Jesus is to know God himself. It's the thing that each of us were created for. But at the same time, it's also so much more than that. It wasn't simply who Christ was that was so compelling to Paul, but what Christ was like. Paul experienced not just the person of God, but the character of God. He experienced the grace of Christ in his life, a grace so beautiful that it has brought countless people throughout thousands of years to their knees in tears when they encounter it. Paul was on his way to arrest followers of Jesus, breathing threats and murder against the disciples. And Jesus himself comes And he claims that Paul's efforts were an attack and of persecution against himself. But Jesus chooses to look him in the eye and say, Saul, you are a chosen possession of mine. I want you. I want you to carry my name into all the world. Jesus, he he had every right to convict and condemn Paul. And, Paul, and he would have been justified in doing so. But that's not the heart of Jesus. Paul gets confronted by God, by the God that has, he has been attacking, and it is a confrontation of grace. And implicit in that grace is this love and forgiveness that brings about healing and identity and calling for Paul. And this is still the way 
Jesus works today in 2023. He meets people in a confrontation of grace. And implicit in that grace is love and forgiveness from God. And that love and forgiveness brings about healing and wholeness and restoration. And God picks us up and gives us a new identity in Christ and calls us to follow him in order to come and know him more deeply. If you don't know Jesus, this is on the table for you this morning. He's calling you. He wants you to know him and to be satisfied. And it's out of this encounter with Jesus and experiencing his character that Paul's life is radically changed. It's the spark of the fire that gives, Paul, that gives us the Paul that we hear in Philippians. Paul that steps into this new calling of following Jesus. Because meeting Jesus, when you truly encounter him, it inevitably leads to phase two of knowing Christ, which is following Jesus. Because when you encounter the grace of Christ, the overwhelming pull of your heart is, I want to know him deeper. In the story we just read, after their encounter, it says that Paul's eyes were opened in verse eight, though he could not see. Paul, as I mentioned, he had experienced the spiritual awakening. His eyes were opened in meeting Jesus, even though he was blinded. And this Pandora's box was opened that could never be shut again. And it's out of that where we get this line from Paul. I want to know Christ. It's written well over a decade after that moment on the road to Damascus. Paul had given his life to Jesus in pursuit of knowing him more and more. The sole focus of his life to know Christ. Every day, I want to know Christ. With every breath, I want to know Christ. It's kind of like when I first met Taylor at a concert at Rocket Town, and everything in me cried, I want to know her more. And now here today, hardly a day has passed in over 11 years that her and I haven't had a conversation together, and I still want to get to know her more. Now where that comparison falls short is that Taylor is a finite being with only so much grace for me and my foolishness, but Christ is infinite and his grace is abundant. Paul calls it the unsearchable riches of Christ in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Though unsearchable, Paul says, I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection. And then he lays out this roadmap to coming to know Christ more fully. Or actually, he kind of copies and traces a roadmap that had been laid out earlier in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians 2, there's this poem that Paul has kind of inserted into the text. And it's this roadmap of the life of Christ. You can kind of see it here. The colors aren't great, but you follow along with me. If We've already covered this poem, um, but I'm gonna read it aloud for us here. That Christ, who though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so later in our text today, in Philippians 3, when Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, so that by any means necessary, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul is sequentially following the pattern of this poem he had written out earlier, which is to say he's following the path laid out by Christ. For Paul, knowing Jesus was synonymous with following in the footsteps of Jesus. The gospel message of Jesus was twofold. It was one, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And two, come and follow me. Jesus was proclaiming the good news that the kingdom of God had drawn near in his coming. His eternal kingdom of sin and death are de- where they are defeated. And there's this invitation to follow him because he's not only going to open the doors into that kingdom, but he invites us in to come and know him more deeply by following him. Believing in Jesus and apprenticing under Jesus, following him, were never meant to be separated from one another as his call. Now let me point something out here, just culturally. When I say the word following Jesus, I mean following in his footsteps. And this can be a little confusing in our culture today where the primary use of the word follow is in the context of social media, where it means more to be a subscriber to. But that's not what Jesus is calling for. Jesus is not looking for TikTok followers. He's looking for men and women to orient and architect their life after his. Jesus isn't looking for subscribers. He's looking for disciples. This is what Paul is getting at in Philippians chapter three, following the example and the path laid out by Jesus. Paul maps out, and that Paul had mapped out in chapter two, and he traces onto his life to follow that path as the path to knowing Christ, his Lord. And Paul understood that after meeting Jesus, there's this responsibility that he carries as a disciple to pursue intimacy with the Lord, to come to know Christ relationally and experientially. There's this onus on him and every other disciple because Jesus does not simply save us to give us a ticket into heaven. He saves us because he wants us to know him. He wants us to know him deeply in the farthest reaches of our soul, which comes from a lifetime of pursuit so that we may come to know him more fully. And this was Paul's aim, to know Christ fully. 
And Paul, in verse 12, he says, not that I've already obtained this. For Paul, to meet Jesus was the most valuable thing in the world. The word that he uses, the Greek tense of that verb, when he says to know Christ, it is this kind of instantaneous, all-consuming thing that like just meeting Jesus is more valuable than anything else in the world but there's still so much more is what Paul is getting at here. And that just simply meeting Jesus is not the same thing as knowing him intimately or fully. And that there's this invitation into a journey. It's like Gandalf showing up at the front door of Bilbo Baggins. There's a whole lot more for Bilbo to experience than just a wizard in a pointy hat and a bunch of rowdy dwarves in his house. But Bilbo has to leave the comfort of his home to experience that journey for himself. Following Jesus is the path by which we come to know him more intimately. Specifically here for Paul, through following Jesus, on a journey of surrender, even into suffering and death. Paul looked at the life of Jesus and he says, you were willing to go, so will I. Wherever you were willing to go, so will I. You're willing to suffer, so am I. You're willing to die out of love for me and these people, so will I. And Paul has oriented his life on this same trajectory. Paul's aim was to follow Jesus, surrendering to his will, yielding to him in love, even into suffering and death, in order that he may know Christ. For a disciple that experiences suffering born out of love and faithfulness to Jesus, There's something that happens within us that brings us into closer union with him. One scholar comments, he says, the Christian who suffers because of his or her faithfulness to Christ can enter into Jesus' feelings when he suffered for faithfully obeying his father. And there is a fellowship in that kind of suffering. This is why Paul doesn't say, I want to just suffer for the sake of Christ. He says, I want to share in his sufferings. Paul wanted to know Christ so badly that he was willing to take on circumstances of suffering as a way of feeling what Christ felt on his behalf and thus know him better. This weekend, uh, I was in Fall Creek Falls and On Friday afternoon, Taylor, my wife, and Marlo, my two-year-old, they were uh, taking a nap. And so I took a couple hours to just go and have some quiet time. And I was sitting on this bench next to the lake at Fall Creek Falls. And I was thinking about this teaching, just kind of meditating on it. And I started reviewing Paul's life in my mind and all the suffering that he endured. And my mind went to this one specific story where Paul is stoned in the city of Lystra for preaching the name of Jesus. And he's stoned so severely that the people stoning him think that they killed him. They think he's dead and they drag his body out of the city and leave him there. 
And I just had this image of Paul laying alone, bruised and bloody, probably unconscious and concussed. And as I had this image in my mind, I just felt the Lord asking, where is that spirit in my church? And I sat there and I wept. And I had to repent before the Lord and say, God, forgive me and your church and give us that spirit. And hear me, I don't, I don't think that Jesus desires to see his followers suffer. I don't think Jesus desires to see anyone suffer or be beaten or killed for their faith. I don't think he does. I imagine that in that moment, Jesus was actually quite heartbroken for Paul. But at least someone was willing to show Jesus the same love that he has shown all of us. For us in the West, truly suffering for and with Christ in this way is typically not an issue that we face like in other parts of the globe. And that is, that's truly a blessing. Like, thank God that that's not something that we're facing daily. But in that blessing, I have to wonder if the enemy has been able to come in and coerce us into a kind of soft Christianity, or maybe you'll call it cultural Christianity. But when Jesus simply becomes a widget and a blessing bestower and a scapegoat for all of our hardships in life, Christianity is no longer about knowing Christ, but about living comfortably. But this is how many of us, like myself included, included unknowingly view our relationship with Christ. We don't even want to be made uncomfortable in order to know Christ more, let alone suffer. But Jesus' desire is for you to know him deeply and intimately. And at times that requires walking into the valley with him. Though our lives are not at stake here in the U.S., our comfort and security might be. But it's not about, it's not a contest of like how much you're willing to suffer. But what has the highest priority in your heart? Is it comfort and convenience or is it knowing Christ? In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. He said, the first Christ suffering, which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old self, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our lives over to death, and thus it begins. The cross is not a terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of his first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Martin Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old self at his call. 
in sufferings that are born out of faithfulness to Christ, we come to know him more intimately. But we also trust in love that Jesus knows where he is leading us and that his path ultimately leads to life. Because based on the path of Jesus' life, suffering precedes glory and death precedes resurrection. And after tracing the roadmap of Christ's life onto his own, Paul moves on to say, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward towards the goal, what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the upward prize and the call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, as long as I live, I press on to know Jesus more intimately each day with my eyes set on the day that I will know Christ fully when I am united with him in resurrection which is the third and final phase of the journey of coming to know Christ. When we will know Jesus fully, when we are united with him in resurrection. Paul's goal was complete knowledge of Christ. A goal that he would attain when he entered into the Lord's presence and saw him face to face and the Lord told him, well done. But this did not stop Paul from pursuing Christ while living on earth because he wanted to get to know the Lord as well as possible before getting into the Lord's presence. There was nothing holding back Paul on simply waiting and being complacent and waiting for that day. Paul knew that there was so much of Jesus to explore and discover and receive on this side of resurrection a never-ending well of adventure and love and grace in the person of Jesus, in this relational and experiential knowledge of Jesus. It's all that satisfies that void in our heart, and it is well worth pursuing with all that we are. Paul's final exhortation in this kind of train of thought here is this, he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Church, my prayer is that this is our aim, together as a church family and in our lives individually, that we would be a people who diligently pursue knowing Christ every day, in every opportunity that we are met with. That meeting Jesus wouldn't be followed by some perceived maintenance routine of checking off the boxes of cultural Christianity, but that we would be marked as a people who love Jesus and want to know him more fully, more relationally, more experientially with every breath that we breathe that we may know the Lord as well as possible before we enter into his presence, standing before him face to face together as a church family. May the cry of our church be, I want to know Christ. I pray that that simple line just becomes an anchoring prayer in your life and in our church, and that it becomes the goal that we press on towards every day. 
So as we move to communion, um, if you're new here, welcome. We often circle up in groups of like three to five and discuss. There's no pressure to, but there's an invitation to. And I've got two questions for us to kind of reflect on individually or in groups together. And there are these, these two questions. How are you pursuing knowing Christ more relationally? And two, where might Christ be calling you into deeper intimacy with him? So I'm gonna give us kind of five to eight minutes to reflect on your own or circle up in groups of three to five and discuss together before I come back up and lead us in communion all together.